Imagine that you are traveling and on vacation and you find yourself parking your vehicle so that you can get out and go about the activity that you have traveled some distance to achieve. But as you're getting out of your car, someone approaches you and says, hey, wait a minute, you can't park there. Now again, how you respond to that command or that warning that you can't park in that place will depend upon who is telling you that. Right? If this is just some random person dressed in tourist clothes like yourself, you might assume this is just someone that's upset that you've gotten their parking spot and uh, now they can't have it. And so you might decide to ignore that, or if the person looked a little bit threatening, right, you might decide to give in to their request. But if this was someone who was dressed in a police uniform, someone who was known to have authority of the law in our society, you might make a different Action, you might get in your car and move that in response to the authority that person carries. Not necessarily because of their personal name, but because their name of police officer carries an authority and a weight in our society. And what we're looking at this morning as we continue this journey through the book of Exodus is sort of piggybacking on what we saw last week when we saw Moses and Aaron bringing Yahweh into the Pharaoh's palace for the confrontation between these two gods, Pharaoh and Yahweh, to begin. And we saw how Pharaoh was not interested in listening to what Yahweh had to say because the name of Yahweh did not carry any authority or weight in Pharaoh's mind. And the same is true when we come to these actual displays of the plagues. Pharaoh is still struggling to embrace that Yahweh rules over him. And so in, in order to make himself known to Pharaoh and to the Israelites, and as we'll see to all the watching nations, Yahweh explains who his name is, that his name does carry authority, and therefore when he gives a command, it is in, it is in our uh, obligation as his creatures to listen to what he has to say. And that's where we arrive at with these particular plagues. We've seen how in the book of Exodus, the story begins with God's people being oppressed by a Pharaoh, genocides being committed against them. They're a threat to their extinction because of uh, the actions that are being taken out of throwing their male children into the Nile to kill them, to weaken the nation. And we see how we saw how God raised up a leader through Moses who would serve as the representative of Yahweh in Pharaoh's court to confront Pharaoh that he needs to let the Israelite nation go so that this people who belong to God might serve him instead of continuing to serve Pharaoh. And in order to allow that to happen, God sets up this uh, dueling match, if you will, with Pharaoh through these plagues. And this morning, Brandon read sort of the first encounter that took place. It really wasn't a plague, but it was a sign where there's these dueling of the staffs or the snakes that take place. And then he read the first plague, which is the turning of the water of the Nile into blood. Now, we're going to cover all ten plagues this morning, but we're not going to go into great detail. There are ten plagues, the water to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils that get on the skin of the people, hail that falls from the sky to destroy the crops, locusts that come and eat the remaining crops. The sky darkens, 
And then, of course, the final plague, the death of the firstborn of every Egyptian family that refused to take the escape that God provides. What we're going to do is not look at these things in great detail on exactly what happened with each plague, because that's really not why these plagues are here, to give you the details of the gnats and the flies and why all those things were chosen. The bigger issue is why the plagues at all. Right? That's really what we need to get. I mean, you can go back and read the details at a later time if you're interested in doing so. What I want you to see, and I think this is really the point that Moses has in recording these, is what God's trying to accomplish through them. What is the purpose of these plagues? And I take this as one sermon because of how this information is sort of, is sort of bracketed. There in chapter 7... If you'll notice there in verse 3, Yahweh tells Moses before Moses goes in to meet with Pharaoh, he says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Alright? Then notice the similarity of the language here when you flip all the way to chapter 11 where there is a threatening of the final plague. Notice verses 9 and 10 of chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out to his land. And so we see, sort of see a bracketing there that this similar language is used at the beginning and at the end before they move on to the Passover, the actual final plague that drives the death blow, literally, to Pharaoh's palace so that Pharaoh relents and releases the people. So it begins there. God's telling Moses, I'm going to send you to do these signs and wonders, but Pharaoh's not going to listen. Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh freely chooses to do what I have freely chosen that he would do. There's a mystery in that, right? But the question then begs, why are there multiple plagues? If it is the death of the firstborn that is the final blow that brings it about, why does God do nine other plagues? What's the purpose of this? And in answering this question, we get to the heart of why the plagues happened anyway. It's not just about releasing God's people from their bondage in Egypt. That's part of it, but there's a much bigger task that God's after. And to help answer this, we looked at this passage last week, but I want to go back to chapter 9 of Exodus, and let's read verses 15 and 16. And now, let's back up to verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants, he's talking to Pharaoh, and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Right? You always said, I have the power. I could have ended this the first time. We could have gone to the biggest plague and, and just dealt with you with one thing. Why this drama of confront, confrontation, let me go, or I'm going to send this plague, and then I send the plague, and then you relent, and then we do this dance again and again and again. Why, why all this? 
But for this purpose, verse 16, I have raised you up to show you my power. So he wants to show Pharaoh who he really is so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So again, God is going to deliver his people, but he's saying he could have done that with one plague. Why this long dance of multiple plagues? And he gives us the answer. His purpose is that my name, remember Pharaoh, that name you said, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Well, I'm telling you who Yahweh is, and I want the whole world to hear my name proclaimed when they talk about what I did to the mighty Pharaoh and the mighty Egyptian nation, which was the most powerful on the face of the earth at this time. So the dim, these ten plagues are a demonstration of the power of Yahweh. Who is this God who's created the world? His name is Yahweh, and he possesses great power. And he exercises that power so that others may know his name as well. There is a missional impulse to these plagues. God is using judgment upon the Egyptians to proclaim his name to all the nations. And he is saving his people, the Israelites. And through his salvation, his name is proclaimed to the nations. That is God's aim. That is what God, why God does everything that he does is so that his name, Yahweh, might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now again, there's a lot that's going on there. Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. Yahweh's hardening Pharaoh's heart. There's a mystery on the means of how this, this dance between Pharaoh and Yahweh is set up. But God's purpose in why it happened is crystal clear. And I'll, let's just go back and look at this repeating theme. That's what I want you to see, this reoccurring repetition. That's how in Hebrew literature the author indicates what you should pay attention to is through repetition. Notice in chapter 7, we'll begin there in verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Notice in verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. And that's what happened. Go on to chapter 8, verse 10. And he said, tomorrow, Pharaoh said, that's when I want to happen. And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And so then the frogs were taken away. Then it'll get us over in chapter 9, in verse 14, when the plague of the hail is being promised on their land. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And notice in verse 16, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 
And then you go to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you they know that I am the Lord. So over and over and over. Why wasn't it just one time? Because God wanted a continuous repetition lesson. I'm going to give you a ten-part lecture that I am the Lord. I am God, Pharaoh, and there is none like me. Israelites, listen to me. There is no other God like me. I'm it. And then here with Moses, he's saying, look, Moses, later on, when people who aren't even born yet, your grandsons... And your great-grandsons, generations in the future, my name needs to be proclaimed to them. And these plagues, which are a demonstration of my power, will allow you to proclaim my name. Who am I? I am the God who makes himself known through the judgment of my enemies and through the salvation of my people. So these plagues are not for us just to memorize which come in what order and what plagues so we can win Bible trivia. That's not the point. The plagues are in themselves an act of God revealing himself. He's making himself known. God sends them so that people might know that he is the Lord. There is no one else like him. He has no rivals. And that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I am the Lord. There is none like me, and my name needs to be told to everyone who walks on the face of this earth. So the purpose of these plagues is that Yahweh wants the world, all peoples, to know that he alone is God. That's what it is. That's why they're here. Now, he wants the whole world to know that he alone is God. So what disclosures about himself does he make through these plagues? Well, the first one, and really the primary disclosure that Yahweh makes, is that Yahweh is the real God. He is the real God. And again, this all goes back to chapter 5, when Moses first approaches Pharaoh with Yahweh's demands. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, that they may serve me. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Now notice here, Pharaoh's issue wasn't that there is no God. Pharaoh was not an atheist, all right? Pharaoh was actually very postmodern in his thinking. His issue was, why should I listen to your God when I have my own gods? That's his issue. Pharaoh was not bothered that the Israelites had their own God and wanted to explore their own spirituality. You do you, Israelites, and we'll do us. That's all great. The issue arose when their worship of Yahweh got in the way of Pharaoh's plans. You say, now we got a problem with your religion now because your religion's not allowing me to do what I want to do and you're not keeping your religion to yourself. 
You're saying that your religion makes claims on me and things of how I ought to live and I ought to run my nation. And so Pharaoh's basically saying, look, Moses, don't start imposing your religion on how I want to run this nation. I'm going to run it according to what I think and according to the gods that I worship. And our culture today reacts the same way. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. It just takes on a different dress that it puts on. When Jesus makes claims upon all people, because he is the creator of all people, the response is commonly, who is the Lord Jesus that I should obey him? That's fine if you want to do that. That's your religion. You, you can follow that. You can believe that. But, but that, that doesn't apply to me. That has no relevance to my life and how I live. And how is it that we respond when people think this way? Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord Jesus that I should obey him? Well, the plagues give us an answer. Because in the plagues, God is declaring that he is is the only real, true God. And therefore, He is the only relevant God. He is the only God that we or any creature should listen to because He created all people. He is the only one worth listening to, obeying. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 10 we read, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There is no multiple gods. There are no rivals to Yahweh. He alone deserves the Israelites' allegiance and the allegiance of the Egyptians. And in order to prove that there is no one like God, what does Yahweh do? He brings judgment on the gods of Egypt. The plagues that God sends attacks the idea that all religions are the same. This is a common belief in our society. Well, all religions are just different pathways to the same destination. The plagues are proving that's not true. Because the Egyptians said, Ra, he controls the sun. And Yahweh says, well, you know, matter of fact, Moses, let's go into Pharaoh and tell him that for three days it's going to be dark in Egypt. That's what I say. I'm Yahweh. And you say Ra comes out on a boat on the celestial sky, and he brings the sun up into the sky, and then at night he brings it down, and then the next day he brings it up. And so for three days that's not going to happen. Now who's really in control here, Pharaoh? Ray or me? He's judging them and proving that their religion is not the same as the worship of Yahweh. It is impotent. It lacks power. It's made up. That's what's taking place. Since there is only one real God, only what he says is a reliable source of truth. And this is really why, again, there's ten of these plagues. God is particularly attacking the gods of their societies. It begins there in that first sign, not the first plague, but the first sign, when there in verse 8 of chapter 7, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. 
So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, snakes were a key part of the Egyptian religion. They believed that the world was actually created by the sun god who took the form of a snake. And so here in this sort of beginning story, we see this boxing match being set up. They're, they're testing each other out, and initially this snake that, that Aaron provides defeats the snakes that the Egyptians are able to do. And then we move into the Nile River. That who's in really control of the Nile? The god Hapai was the god that the Egyptians worshipped, but it was Yahweh who was able to control the water turning it into blood. And then there was a god by the name of Hekek who had the head of a frog, and we see the frog plague. And there was Apis and Menevis who were bulls, and Hathor who was a cow, and they were worshipped. Yet when the livestock were struck dead, it was Yahweh who did that, and these cattle gods were unable to stay Yahweh's hand. Shechemet was the lion goddess of plagues that should have been able to help heal the boils that were on their bodies, yet that god fell short. Nut, the sky goddess, was able to prevent, was unable to prevent the hail from destroying the crops, or to prevent the east wind that broke the locust upon their crops to consume what was left. And then, of course, as I've already mentioned, Ray, the sun god, was unable to bring light when three-day darkness was cast upon the nation of Egypt. Time and time again, Yahweh is dismantling their entire religious system. You worship these gods who are after the images of created things, frogs and, and lions and, and, and eagles and snakes. They're not real. And they are no rival to the true God, Yahweh. And I will demonstrate that before your very eyes. Yahweh is the real God. But he also discloses that Yahweh is the powerful creator. God could have used any kind of weapon against the Egyptians. He chooses, rather, to fight with weapons that only he has at his disposal and that only he can command. After all, what defense is there against the forces of creation itself? He uses all of creation. He attacks from the land. He attacks with, with, the with, the, with the gnats. He attacks from the sea with the frogs. He attacks from the air with the flies. All of creation is summoned to battle upon Pharaoh to explain why it is Pharaoh should listen, should obey what Yahweh says. Now, scholars argue about the cause of these events. Did the Nile result being turned to blood? Did that result in the frogs invading? And then the frogs die, and so that brings the gnats and the flies. And then you've got all these dead animals, and so did that lead to the disease that got infected the livestock and then ultimately created boils on the people? I don't know the answer to all those things, and I don't quite frankly think it's that important. What is important is understanding that whether it was by natural cause or by some kind of supernatural cause, the reality is God was behind it. Because the timing of these things were determined by God. He would, he would announce it in advance of it. 
And even sometimes when the plagues would stop, Moses would ask Pharaoh, excuse me, when do you want it to stop? You want it tomorrow morning, tomorrow evening, so that we can be clear that this isn't some natural thing. This is by the command and dictate of Yahweh himself. The timing indicates God's behind it. Not only the timing of these events, but after the fourth plague, Yahweh begins to differentiate between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Plagues would hit the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. And so indicating again that Yahweh is the powerful creator upon, behind this unleashing of creation in judgment upon the Egyptians. Yahweh discloses that He is the real God. There is none like Him. He is the powerful creator that summons creation to do His bidding against the Egyptian gods. And we also see that Yahweh is the just judge. The Egyptians had basically made gods out of creatures. That's what they'd done. And what's interesting to note here is that God takes creation, the very things that they worship, and He uses those things as instruments in judgment upon them. Yahweh says, doesn't you, doesn't the, don't, how, look how foolish you are. The very things that you're worshiping, that you're looking to for life, I'm turning them and bringing judgment upon you, bringing death, destruction. God always tends to work that way. I'll give you one insight here. In chapter 9, verse 8, is an example of this. The Lord, when he wants to bring the plague of boils upon the people, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the clean, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. Now what's interesting is this kiln was the very thing that the, the Israelites would use to make their bricks. So again, Pharaoh's oppressing the Israelites in making bricks here, and Yahweh's like, let's take a little dust of that, and I'm now going to oppress the Egyptians through boils on their livestock and on their own flesh. You see, in chapter 1, Pharaoh is opposing the creation mandate. He's a different Pharaoh, but he's opposing the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. He's standing against that and trying to suppress and keep the population of the Israelites down. And so, because of that, Yahweh decides to use creation as the means of bringing judgment upon himself. It's almost as though Yahweh is saying, look, Pharaoh, two can play this game. You're trying to oppose my purposes in creation, and I'll just show you it's going to turn on you. Yahweh is bigger than the gods of Egypt, and he unleashes the forces of creation to drive this point home. There's a justice in the judgment that he brings, because these plagues really are a reversal of creation. Animals are harming people rather than serving humanity, which is why God created them. Light ceases and darkness takes over. Water, which is supposed to be a source of life, is turned into blood and becomes a source of death. The climax of Genesis chapter 1, the, the height of creation, is when God creates human life in His image. And the pinnacle plague is when God takes life in judgment, the firstborn 
of each family that is not covered with the Passover lamb. You see, in everything, God brings chaos to where there was order. Everything falls apart in Egypt. The Nile's not working. The animals aren't behaving as they should. The sun's not where it's supposed to be. There is chaos. Just as there was chaos upon the earth before the Lord created, brought order, and fashioned it, when He rules, things work. When His rule is cast off, judgment falls and chaos ensues. We, like the Egyptians, as all human beings, were made to live in dependence and obedience to God. But like the Egyptians, we instead, we, we like them, have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Instead of believing that God is the only one God, and therefore He is worthy of our obedience, we have created other gods that we live for. Now we might scoff at the fact of worshiping a frog god, or a snake god, or a, a, a god in the shape with a cow head on it, right? I don't know, but who knows in these days, right? We may end up being there very soon. We may scoff and laugh at that. But we have our own gods that we've created, things that give us life. This is what I'm living for. If I don't get this, I can't be happy. I can't find fulfillment unless God provides this. Whatever we answer in that blank is functionally what we're living for. We exchange the truth about God that He is this powerful Creator who's created us and therefore we owe Him allegiance for the lie that we can craft a life apart from God. We can do what we want to, be who we want to be, apart from God's instruction. And therefore, we worship created things rather than the Creator. Paul himself picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 1. He says, For His, Yahweh's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the real God, the powerful Creator, the just judge. They exchanged that knowledge for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's exactly what the Egyptians had done, and that's exactly what humanity has been doing since its existence on this earth. And when we do this, just like Egypt, things begin to fall apart. Our physical, our mental, and emotional lives become disordered. We experience emotional darkness, mental breakdown, personal conflict, and physical addictions because we're not living under the authority of the name Yahweh. The result is God has ordered the world for judgment to fall when we don't live according to His way. We get sick in ultimate judgment. We die because we have sinned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So Egypt is a picture of life in meltdown. 
after God justly judges us for saying, Who is Yahweh that I should obey Him? But thanks be to God, that's not where it ends. Yahweh doesn't just disclose that He is the real God, there is no one like Him, that He is the powerful Creator, and that He is the just judge. He also discloses that He is the merciful Redeemer. You see, as Egypt descends into chaos, God's people are protected. God begins to make a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. They are protected from many of these plagues. And why is this? It's not like the Israelites have this great track record of being faithful to Yahweh. As a matter of fact, they weren't even very familiar with who Yahweh was when Moses first showed up on the scene. They had to be convinced forgotten him after 430 years of slavery in Egypt. What made them different? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, there is a reflection on this. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He chose the Israelites. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of the peoples. So as Moses is saying, listen, Israel, don't, don't, don't get the big head. You, you, God didn't choose you because you were the mightiest nation. You were the smallest. You were the weakest. You were the runt of the litter. And God chose you. Why is that? Well, again, it's not something in you, verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you that he is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. Why is it that he provides a merciful escape, a merciful redemption for the Israelites? Well, it's not because of something within them. It's simply, as Moses says here, because the Lord loves them. That's why. Why does he love them and not the Egyptians? I don't know. He didn't explain that. But the reason he chose them is because he loved them. That's the explanation he gives. Later on, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 picks up this account here in Exodus 9 that we just read and later echoes Exodus 33 verse 19 when he says, For he says to Moses, Romans 9, 15 through 18, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The Israelites walk out of Egypt not because of something they've done, not because of some internal goodness they possess. They walk out because God decided to show them mercy. Because he is a merciful redeemer. He wants that truth about himself proclaimed in all the earth. He doesn't want just claim that he's a powerful creator and a just judge. Those two things are true. He also wants the world to know that he shows mercy and he shows compassion based on his loving nature. You see, we cannot boast that our salvation depends upon our desires and our 
efforts. So many want to do that. So many Christians miss this point. But brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, if you're trusting in Him, it's not because you're better than your neighbor. It's not because you're more spiritually in tune with the world. It's because God in His love for you showed Himself to be a merciful Redeemer. There ought to be boasting in response to that. But not boasting in your spirituality or your winsomeness or your insight. But a boasting in the merciful, gracious, compassionate nature of a God who has shown mercy and compassion to you. And this ninth plague at the very end of this, where God shows darkness on the Egyptians and yet He shows light in Goshen, the land of the Israelites, came both as a sign of judgment and a sign of salvation, of favor to His people. And this is nothing new because later on in the story of the Bible, we see this same darkness falling. But it doesn't fall for three days, it falls for three hours when Jesus himself is hanging on the cross. At the cross, a plague falls upon Jesus. At the cross, the maker is unmade so that we can be remade. The son was unraveled by the judgment of the father as Jesus died on the cross. And his resurrection from the dead was the promise and the beginning of a new creation that God is working not only in saving people unto himself, but also in recreating this world which has been cursed out of God's judgment on our sin. The only place of safety in Egypt when things went dark was in Goshen, the home of the Israelites. And the only place of safety in the coming judgment will be in Christ, who is the true home of God's people. So I end this sermon with this question. Who is your God? Are you like Pharaoh that when Yahweh comes along, the Lord Jesus comes along and says, you know, this is what life looks like. Is your thought, well, who is Jesus that I should obey him? You see, the question to ask in this passage of the plagues is not what does this ultimately have to do with me. We must at least first ask, what does this passage tell me about who God is? And in this section, we meet Yahweh, who wants the world to know that He alone is God. He wants to be known as the real God. He alone powerfully rules over creation. He alone has authority to justly judge the world. And He alone is the merciful Redeemer, showing compassion and mercy to whomever He wills. You see, the Israelites come to know God better by what He has done. Yahweh, who are you? Well, let me show you. And through the plagues, He does it. And it's based on this knowledge they gain through the plagues that ultimately we'll see later on in Exodus that they base their morality, how they order their lives. Because you see, when our hearts and our minds are filled with a personal knowledge of our Creator, then proper morality, proper living will follow upon that. And the vice versa is true. If we reject the knowledge about God, there is no stopping what we as humanity will ultimately wind up doing. 
until it folds in on itself. So who we are is determined by what we worship. Whether we worship Yahweh, the world, or we worship ourselves, this plague narrative, indeed, as a matter of fact, the whole Bible is a call to worship the true God, the real God, the powerful creator, the just judge, the merciful redeemer. He alone is worthy of our worship, our service. And the goal of our service is that we tell others what we know to be true of Him. You see, these plagues were a sign of God's judgment upon the Egyptians and a sign of God's salvation to His people. But when we move outside of the Exodus event itself, we see that these plagues are also pointers to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. The ultimate place where God makes himself known both in judgment on the sin and the salvation of his people through the death of his son. You see, on the cross, Jesus experienced the judgment that will fall on all who are outside of him. And in his resurrection, Jesus was raised to be the judge of the world and to bring that judgment on those who refuse to repent of their sins and believe upon him. But at his cross, we also see it bring salvation to all who are in him, who are trusting in him. And his resurrection is the promise to all those who trust in him of a promise of their own resurrection from death. In Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, it says that God sent the plagues because He wants worshipers of all generations. Moses, tell your, your son and your grandsons that these plagues freed the Israelites to worship Yahweh. And the plagues give them reasons why Yahweh is worthy of our worship. And the same is true for us today. Not only can we take this of the plagues and what it reveals of Yahweh to spur our own response of worship, but we know even more than the Israelites. We know that God sent His only begotten Son to free us to worship Him and to give us the reasons why He is worthy of our praise. They saw judgment and salvation in the plagues. We see it there as well, but we have also seen a greater judgment and salvation in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, let us rightly respond to this revelation of God. Let us worship Him with all our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself. Father, we're thankful that you point out the foolishness of living for any God, any other thing than you. Lord, just to see the, the destruction and, and the, the pain and the suffering that the Egyptians experienced because they exchanged the truth that you are God for a lie that they could create their own gods to live and give them life. And Father, I pray that you would expose in our own hearts those gods that we are turning to 
to find the fulfillment and the purpose in life that can only be found in living for you. We ask that you would expose that even though it's hard to see, Lord, even though it's hard to let those things go because we've bought the lies that that they promised to us, a fulfillment of happiness, of joy, of power, of meaning. But Father, we know that your grace is powerful enough to free us. And so we ask that you would do it. And that you would help us to make sure that all of our life, that we'd be striving that every ounce of who we are, every day, would be committed to worshiping you. And Father, when we fall short, as we will, that we would run quickly to you to repent and to receive the forgiveness that is so full and so free because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us and his glorious resurrection from the dead. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.